up until I was 14, everybody was, you know, had two eyes and everybody saw the same thing. After I was 14, everybody's blind. We're the one-eyed man. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today is Gil Ifradi. He is the Chief Marketing Officer of Resident. Resident is a challenger direct-to-consumer, although they do do some retail as well, mattress brand. You might not have heard of them. However, a couple years ago, they were actually the fastest-growing e-commerce brand in North America. So Gil's background, he was the head of e-commerce at Google. He was there for many years. He's an active investor in some top-tier e-commerce startups. So for anyone in e-commerce, this is absolutely a must-listen. However, I really think for anybody, because what we get into and what is a little bit different than some of the other conversations we've had on Scratch is, you know, I think it kind of focuses on this idea and what he says at the very beginning, that Resident is actually a data company that happens to sell mattresses. And as you hear Gil talk, and get a peek inside how Resident and the marketing function actually works, that's gonna to come to life for you in a fascinating way. So he talks about how everything gets tracked, everything gets measured, everything gets focused on the return on ad spend that it delivers. He talks about how they have one of the healthiest media mixes in the industry, and actually they do their uh, ad budget planning completely differently. There actually is no budget. They work on what he calls a cap model, where they can spend as much as they want as long as it returns a certain percentage uh, of revenue for every dollar spent. So there's a lot of very different and very progressive, very exciting thinking in what Gil talks about and what he's doing at Resident. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. I definitely did. So without further ado, Gil Ifradi of Resident. Hey Gil, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am good. How are things down in Israel? You know, uh, sunny, getting a bit colder, but, uh, you know, 20-something degrees still. Can't complain. Nice. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that we talked, you know, we're recording this in December. We talked first over the summer, um, and I was just fascinated by the story and some of the stats that you shared about what you've been up to at Resident and the whole group of businesses that you're involved with. So I'm really excited to hear more about it today and share it with our audience. So let's get into it. Um, if we can start with the question that we ask every guest, can you tell us about a brand that you're very passionate about right now that's not your own and why? Oh, that's a good question. Um... I think me as a, as the CMO and a person who's very, very much um, into the day-to-day -day of marketing, um, I'm actually pretty fascinated with Liquid Death and what's going on over there uh, over the past year. I think they've done, you know, I can relate a bit because we set, we also sell kind of like what you would call a boring utility product, right? Mattresses are <laughs> typically boring but they are very important to you, same as water. Um, and kind of going into that space, selling water um, by purely, you know, differentiating on the marketing side is uh, is phenomenal. I think what these guys are doing over there is, is really great. 
It's amazing to the tune of a $700 million valuation in their last round, which is interesting. Uh, we'll see how that works out for the investors, but uh, it, it is incredible what they do. I mean, they're one of kind of the default examples that we give. And it's interesting because we, you know, we talk about traditional brands and then there's challenger brands like a liquid death. And then we talk about rival brands, which for us are challengers that have been able to go mainstream to truly change and redefine the category that they're in. And so it's interesting with a liquid death because they are probably one of the lead, definitely in their category, the leading beverage CPG brand out there in the US. Are they going to be able to take that and flip it into a rival brand, become the new incumbent within their category? Or, you know, a lot of these challenger brands struggle because they're so pointed with their differentiation, the way that they get attention, the way that they build equity is this disruptive gorilla. It's hard to rep it's hard to scale, you know, and it's hard to appeal to the mainstream. Um, so I think I think they'll definitely be an interesting one to watch. It's a great, great shout out. So um, we've got a lot to get through, certainly more than 30 to 40 minutes uh, of time will allow, but let's just dive in. So Starting with talking about, and Liquid Death is a perfect segue, differentiation. So differentiation, as we talk about a lot, and I know you are very passionate about, is a key component when it comes to building successful challenger brands. So I guess where I want to start is, and you kind of mentioned this already, direct-to-consumer mattresses. It's a super crowded category that's had its struggles over the years. You know, up here in the UK, Eve just went into administration, Casper, a lot of people have talked about the struggles that they've had after a very hot start. So what are you doing differently at Resident to make it work? Yeah, so I think it, it comes down to, there's like the differentiation in your go-to-market approach, and then there's the differentiation in the eyes of the consumer, right? These are two different things. I think the biggest differentiation we have in how we operate and how we run the company is... Um, we consider ourselves a data and marketing company that just happens to sell mattresses. And over the years, we've invested, we've over-invested in data infrastructure that allows us to do performance marketing at the highest level, I would say, almost ever been done across any e-commerce business. Um, and unlike you know other companies that have raised a lot of money have went towards like land grab by just pushing a lot of money into building a brand and assuming that, you know, that brand's going to last forever. Uh, and you can wind down that brand spend over time and just keep your sales. Uh, we, we've always been through that model of every dollar you spend needs to be justified on a standalone sale basis with positive ROI. And I think that's what differentiates us from practically everyone else in the D2C uh, space for mattresses uh, from the business model or, you know, modus operandi sort of way. Um, from the differentiation in the eyes of the consumer, I would say that we talked about mattresses being, you know, you spend a third of your life, you know, on, on your bed pretty much, but it's still a boring utility product and people don't really understand mattresses, right? You understand mattresses the way you understand carburetors. You, you just don't. Um, and so we try to focus one on, of course, explaining and conveying that, you know, our mattress is as good or better than anything else out there. But also we try 
to enhance the perceived value that you as a consumer is getting. We focus on the offer and the the, the deal that you're getting is, is the best you could. Um, and when you're talking performance marketing, that is very, very important uh, to, to, to communicate that. So I want to, I want to pick up on something that you said. So the, you know, data and marketing business that happens to sell mattresses, heavy focus on performance and return on ad spend or return on investment. What does that mean for brand? And I know we're going to talk a little bit later on about creativity and data, the art and science of marketing, but I'd be curious within that because to me, and obviously I'm oversimplifying it to kind of make a point and be slightly controversial to what you said, but if sales is short-term cash flow, to me, brand is long-term cash flow. It's about building the awareness and the equity for future purchase and return. And I think that a lot of businesses struggle to invest properly in brand if they are always looking for short-term return on everything that they do. And so I believe that all marketing should be measured, but not all marketing should be measured within a 30, 90-day return on ad spend window. So uh, is there some nuance to how you talked about it or is it that black and white? And if so, how do you think about building brands? For sure, that, that is a great question. Uh, so my answer to, to these questions typically go first towards kind of like getting that, that question back to you. Let's say I have a successful profitable business that is fueled by performance marketing that performance marketing allows me to spend over $250 million a year on marketing, on media, pure media. It could be anywhere, okay? That alone, the ability to be able to afford that level of spend allows you to build a brand. That is, that is answer number one. Uh, and then the, 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 the second part of that answer is how do you utilize those $250 million using, you know, creative that really tells a story about your brand and, um, and really kind of tells the customer who you are and what you represent. But it all starts with the ability to just have a very large marketing budget that reaches out to, to a wide audience. I think that's number one. The other piece is we have a very, we work in a very unique industry. You, only come into the mattress buying cycle every, you know, different surveys say different things, but typically it's about seven years. Okay. Some say five years, some say 10 years. The average is about seven years of, uh, b between, you know, buying a mattress and another mattress, et cetera. And so I, I, I won't say that the value of a brand gets kind of diminished when we're talking about such, such long cycles, but I can tell you that the importance of putting your right, the right ad to the right eyeball when they are in the consideration phase, when they are in market, that is the most important thing. Uh, I can build very high brand awareness now to 99% of the population who are not in the market for a mattress. It would probably not do me any good, especially because this is a product that is boring. So it's not like you're gonna remember, oh, I remember this mattress brand because when you're not in the market for a mattress, you really have no attention for mattresses. Um, so I think some of it is because of the uniqueness of the industry and the category. Uh, but I really believe that performance marketing is what allows you to also build the brand just by spending a lot of money behind it. 
Super interesting. I feel like we could take the whole interview just to talk about this. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pick between the follow up questions I want to ask to that because I know we're gonna need to move on to the other topics. But it's it's really interesting hearing you say that because where my mind went, you know, because um, I don't know if this is the right. I don't know if there are similarities between you know mattress the mattress category and B two B. But as a B two B marketer for the last business where I was CMO and now also with Rival we think a lot about a similar perspective on our market, which is, and there's a lot of research and stats out there, but one of them that I throw out all the time is 95% of B2B buyers are not in a purchase cycle at the time you're trying to reach them. And so a lot of what we do with quote unquote rival media, our content and events is build awareness, build equity with marketers who might not be, probably aren't looking to hire a consultancy right now. And we do that solely focused on adding value to them through the content and the experiences that we create. But of course, we believe over the long run that's going to drive growth of our business. But I guess the difference is that you said people who aren't buying a mattress aren't interested in mattress content. Marketers who aren't hiring a consultancy are probably still interested in marketing content. So that's one of the big differences. Um, so what about, um, I guess the other follow-up question for me is, you're spending over $250 million a year on performance marketing now. That wasn't always the case unless you started the business with very deep pockets. And so was brand kind of a, this probably isn't a fair way of putting it, but was it something that you thought of as like, hey, eventually we'll get there, but really it needs to be focused on direct response conversion. Was it kind of a, a secondary priority, I guess, in the beginning or even still now? I think in the beginning, for sure. Uh, in the beginning, for sure. You you know, you, you want to get, when you start a business, you want to get that, that feedback loop from customers. You just want to get as many customers as possible. You want to kind of, they're, they're your guinea pigs at first, right? You want to get as many customers, ask them what they think about the product, about the brand, et cetera. And the brand is something that you kind of, you, you flesh out over time. Uh, unless you are, unless you've already started the company just thinking about the brand and you have like a very unique angle for the brand. Um, here, this business started off very much bootstrapped by, uh, by the founders. And so the goal was just to sell mattresses uh, and, and get traction. Um, over time, as you become a bigger and bigger company, you know, we sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. We have millions of sleepers daily that sleep on our, on our products. Of course, you, you, you want to care about the brand. Things that you could uh, afford to do in the past uh, from a, you know how precious your brand is, um, you cannot do today. Uh, we've had a, a few years ago, right? We were a tiny company, but we've had a Facebook ad that did really, really well. It had a typo in it. And the reason why it did very well is because a lot of people engaged with it. You have a typo. A lot of people commented, you have a typo, you have a typo, you have a typo. Facebook says, okay, this is a good ad. I don't know why, but people are engaging with it. They share it, et cetera. When you care more about the brand, you're not going to put an ad with a typo in it, right? That ad would be immediately removed and uh, and it would be replaced with something else. So um, it, it, it's something that builds over time. So fascinating. Um, so what? So what about, you know, if for a category like yours, where at least from a consumer perspective, there's a lot of uh, commoditization for the product, you know, this mattress to that mattress. And if you're not 
you know, how often do people actually buy mattresses? You're probably not educating yourself or interested in educating yourself about them. And so I know with the traditional model, a lot of it had to do with the salesperson at the showroom that you went to. But how do you think about differentiation within this category? It sounds like a lot of it has to do with the performance marketing with the data and that um, analytical capability and it sounds like cultural DNA within the company. But how else are you thinking about differentiation in the category? Yeah, so I think when the when our founders started the company, there were another 120 D2C mattress brands. Over then, it was like Casper was educating the market. Everybody said, I can do it too. All you needed is a credit card and find a, a provider that would send you a container from China and you would have your own mattress brand, right? It, it was that simple. Um, and I think what our founders did, which was extremely smart, is they looked at all the value propositions in the market that typically revolve around um, um, risk, right? So you want to, to, you know, people don't want to buy a mattress without feeling it or touching it or trying it out. So how do you de-risk that? So Casper de-risked it by giving a 100-night trial. So we decided to give 365-night trial. Casper gave, or other companies gave, 10-year warranties. We gave forever warranty, right? Uh, and in addition to that, there's always like the value proposition of like price or total value. So we give out uh, free pillows and sheets and a mattress protector. So you buy the product and you get everything you need. And instead of needing to attach this product and that product and eventually end up with, with a much uh, larger basket size. So it's, I know it's very transactional. Uh, you know, like just offer, offer, offer. But in the early days, that is what what has worked for for us, and that's kind of like how you differentiate when there's like a sea of sameness when the product is, you know, people don't understand it. So, what do you need? You need to de-risk it for them, and you need to make it compelling for, from an offer perspective. So, I want to take the conversation down a level because we've been talking about what you do, what has made resident, the success that it is, but how you actually do that. If we can kind of look inside the machine, open up the hood slightly. So you talk about being a performance marketing data-led company. What does that actually look like in terms of the day-to-day within your team and within the business right now? Yeah. So before resident, I I joined resident after um, seven years of Google. And I was fortunate enough to see a lot of different uh, internet companies, whether B2B, B2C, e-commerce, um, uh, fintech, whatever, and see what what they do well, what they don't do well. And kind of I tried to take uh, um, the best practices from each. And But I think the, the common thread for all of them was really about the use of data and the, the way that they, they leverage data. And for us, it, it, it's even more important because of the long buying cycle. It's over a $1,000 purchase, right? You do your research. You research across different channels, and it's extremely important. And connecting those data points gets even more important because it's a long journey and because you do that across different channels. Um, And so, for example, on Amazon, there is a very robust device graph. Why? Because it's an app and you're signed in, right? You use it all the time. So Amazon knows if you're on your mobile device, if you're on your desktop device, et cetera. 
building attribution models is easy and stuff like that. When you're a mattress company, no one logs into your website. There's no username. There's no password. It's very hard to, to understand that device A and device B belong to the same customer. And we were able to build the data infrastructure that we can match uh, two or more devices to a significant number of our customers. And so that allows us to plot the user journey across uh, the different devices and really understand um, the user behavior and the user journey. And that, al and that allows us to really build a very healthy media mix. We have the healthiest media mix in the industry. We're not, you know, 90% or 50% or even 30% on any individual channel. And we spend money on every channel possible um, and, and we can still map out that journey to understand where the customers are coming from and where is the marginal return on ad spend the best? Where should we spend the next available dollar? And that concept of the next available dollar works really well with our business because we don't work on marketing budgets. We work on a cap. I can spend X percent of every dollar that I make. I can keep on spending. So as long as that marginal dollar hits that criteria of that ratio, I keep on spending. And that's how you become, that's how you get to like crazy growth, right? Uh, because you're not capping yourself in marketing spend. And when things are going well, you spend more. And when things are going not as well, you can lower spend and conserve cash for later. Um, I think that's kind of like what made us what we are. That is super interesting. I actually have not come across that before. I'm sure there are businesses I've worked with and talked to that do something similar, but at least in these conversations, it hasn't come up. So maybe we can, to the extent that you can share, I'd just be curious how that actually works. So basically, there's a percentage of every dollar that you bring in from marketing that you're able to just kind of spend freely. Is that is that a return on ad spend metric or is it, a, is it an overall ROI metric? for marketing, like including salaries and overheads and things like that? So it's only media, only media, even creators okay. is not yep, part of makes that. Sense. All of that is extra. And do you, do you run your media in-house or is it with an agency? All in-house. It'd be much harder to do that, to use that model if it was out, if it was out of house, I'd imagine. And also you're giving out the margin. Exactly. It's, it's, it's both that it's both like building that institutional knowledge and using the tools, but also it's about accountability and about coordination between the channels. Eventually we have an extremely talented VP of acquisition that he's like, and he, he, he runs an orchestra, right? He, he says, okay, this channel needs to spend less. This channel needs to spend more based on the internal modeling that we have. We have homegrown models that were built by our data scientists. One is a media mix model, and one is a multi-touch attribution model. And in between these two, we are able to really understand the marginal return on ad spend for every channel. And when do we need to just spend more on a specific channel, or when do we need to move money from this channel to that channel? Um, that's kind of like how the magic happens eventually. So how does it, uh, let's take like an annual planning cycle. I don't know if you're going through one now or just went through one, but... Do you have to submit a marketing budget that then you can go over or under depending on the performance of the media? How does it work within the planning cycle and the budgeting that I'm assuming the rest of the business needs to do? Yeah, so what we've built, 
is that the data and the marketing organization are one organization. All of them are reported into, into the, the CMO, which is pretty unique. And so we work pretty much as an agency. We get from our CEOs, the CFO, what the business objectives are from a top line, bottom line perspective on a monthly, quarterly, uh, uh, annual basis. And we need to hit that with the limitations of the, the spend to revenue ratios. Um, the beauty of it is that our data team is able to predict revenue um, ahead of time based on market demand and stuff like that. So we can say, we actually, the data team helps senior leadership in determining what the targets should be, uh, for, you know, from, from the start. And then um, that those targets go, go trickle down to the marketing team and, and below that. That's fascinating. Um, and it's interesting to, you know, recording this in December. So the episode that went out two weeks ago was with the CMO, or actually she's the chief marketing and data officer at, at BMO, a big bank in Canada. She's the only other person, and she's got it literally in her title, but the only other organization where I've seen data roll up to the CMO. So maybe that's becoming maybe that's becoming more of a thing. So Gil, the other thing I want to touch on as part of this chapter in our conversation is iOS 14. So many e-commerce businesses have really struggled post iOS 14 with the privacy changes that have gone into place and the decreased effectiveness for many of them, particularly from Facebook and Instagram and social digital media. How are you or how have you adapted to that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think that's like the, the billion dollar question for a lot of uh, companies because I've seen great D2C companies that were very reliant on Facebook um, that really kind of like crashed and burned once um, th the platform became even like 10% less effective, right? Uh, because it, it can crush your, your margin and your business. Um, I think we've been fortunate enough to you know, it's not like we knew to predict what's going to happen, uh, that, that Apple's going to launch these privacy um, limitations. But um, the, the infrastructure that we've built allowed our channel managers to understand channel performance without even looking at in-platform data. So our channel managers don't really care what Facebook says the CPA is or what Facebook says uh, is the performance on each individual campaign or ad set. Our internal systems tell the channel managers the like the true performance of uh, of every you know every ad set and every campaign. And so yes, Facebook targeting has um, has been dinged a bit and it's getting better over time. But one of the biggest limitations coming out of iOS 14 is that marketers couldn't really understand what's going on, right? Facebook would tell you this campaign's performing well, when in effect, it's the other campaign that was doing well. Um, and if you're relying on only on in-platform data, which again, 99% of companies, that's what they do. They don't have any other tools to do it. Then your performance gets hurt. Uh, for us, I can say that we have um, actually benefited from it. Because if you think about it, you know, up until iOS 14, Everybody was, you know, had two eyes and everybody saw the same thing. After iOS 14, everybody's blind. We're the one-eyed man, right? So, yes, we, we, you know, everybody 
had a harder time with iOS 14. But when you have the tools that we have, then you're not as dinged well while your competitors are severely impacted. So, you know, it, it turned out well for us, but um, I've seen a lot of businesses that, that have struggled even outside our category and in other categories. It's amazing. And I would imagine that the data being a data company that sells mattresses, having data at the core of the culture capabilities, I'm assuming that that doesn't just affect marketing. I'm assuming that affects product and probably distribution and supply chain and all the other elements as well. Obviously, this is a marketing conversation, but just my mind went in that place of how much of an advantage it is, not just for marketing, but for probably every capability. Correct. And it starts from, you know, from the top, our CEOs are very data-driven and every, that's kind of like part of the pre-qualifications uh, to be a leader at the company is you need to know how to work with data. You need to like it. You need to make your decisions based on that. And um, we are big believers in democratizing data. So everyone has access to data. And if there is something that you're um, keen about knowing or your interest or you feel like could, could make the, the difference for the business, you will get the data that you need to make the decision. And um, we don't just encourage it. We kind of force that culturally. And I think um, that's what makes us successful across the entire business. So let's talk about the other side of the fence. A lot of this conversation is focused on data. Let's talk about creativity. So clearly you're a data-led company. So I guess the very broad question is, how do you think about and leverage creativity within marketing for resident? Yeah. And so th that's a great question. And Yes, you. When you're a company that kind of like worships data and worships um, uh, performance, then it's very easy to not care about anything else, right? And it, th that might have been true in the year one of the company or year two, but now that we're already a very big business and we're the market leader, then you care about about that that aspect, especially because we spend so much money on marketing. Then you want the marketing to to tell the story that that you want it to tell. Um, and good marketing means having an engaging piece of content to show the audience. And it could be a UGC Facebook or TikTok ad that, you know, it has one defini definition of engaging. It just gets you to, you know, stop scrolling and watching it, even if it doesn't look polished or amazing. That's kind of like how UGC looks like. Um, but it can also be, you know, on ads that we run on TV or YouTube that are more long form, more polished. We've had two extremely successful campaigns that have won awards like YouTube Ad of the Year Award and stuff like that. We've had the Make America Sleep Again that features Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, before they were even uh, uh, kind of like, um, like we, we knew how to kind of predict the future. Um, so it was before that that actually happened in our um, latest one uh, from a year ago is um, about not trusting commercials, right? Don't trust commercials, trust reviews from real people. Um, so we, we, we made fun of um, a lot of the, the cliches that ads uh, lie to you or show you. Um, and these are, you know, if you haven't seen it already, these are ads that I'm, I'm not objective, but they are hilarious, right? They, they're funny, they're engaging. Each of them is like over a minute long and you can just 
one of my one of the things that I like doing after we launch one of these campaigns is going to YouTube and seeing the comments on the ads. And it's like people are, you know, really writing this is the best ad I've seen. I went back and searched for it on YouTube just to find it again to show it to friends. And these are, you know, things that really um make everybody feel really, really good about about the creatives that we put out there. Um but we also take a very data-driven approach to that. So every ad, when we shoot it, we will invest in another whole shooting day just to make sure that we have all the right variations so that we don't put all of our eggs in one basket in case that storytelling didn't work out from a performance perspective. We need to have a DR version of it or two DR versions with the same concept, the same you know, overarching concept, but it's much more hard sell, much more uh, uh, performance oriented. Um, and, you know, so it, it's always a combination. We always want to de-risk, you know, these productions cost a lot of money um, and a lot of thought goes into it and, you know, everybody gets excited about it. So we try to kind of like enjoy the best of both worlds when we, when we look at creativity. So that was actually going to be my follow-up question, which was not in the script. So it's funny that you went there anyway. I was going to ask what role does data play in the creative process specifically, but I think I can take another angle to it, which I'm curious to hear your response to. So there is the and I think that's fascinating and actually pretty unique. I think in my experience, I can't, you know, been a part of a lot of creative processes and production shoots and things like that. And of course, you're looking for different shots, maybe different snippets. But I think specific, specifically the, hey, if this approach doesn't work, let's shoot a different one. I don't know. I've, I don't know that I've seen that uh, yet. So I think that's really interesting. But what about in the actual ideation process, coming to the idea of what the campaign is going to be, the Make America Sleep Again, or the one that won you the YouTube Ad of the Year Award, was that an entirely subjective creative process where it was you and the creative director from an agency being like, yes, that's awesome? Or was there some data and how you got to the creative idea itself? So um, when we decide to launch one of these campaigns that typically we call them 360 campaigns because they that campaign's gonna get a treatment for each individual channel, different shoots, you know, Facebook needs to be vertical, you know, everything, you know, you have UGC version, like a 360 campaign is a campaign that we overinvest in and it, it runs for a long time. So when we go down that route, um, typically it starts with ideation. The ideation is always looking like every good piece of creative, it starts with an insight, right? You know, like what is that insight in the mattress buying process that um, that, uh, you know, people care about and which, which would get the ad to resonate with them. So for example, make America sleep again is all about what your brain is like when you're not getting good sleep versus when you, when you do get good sleep, right? That's like, that's an insight, right? When I don't sleep well, I'm agitated. I'm, you know, I, I don't think very well. I, I'm underperforming, um, and, you know, when I sleep well, then I'm a whole different person. And so we take that insight, we, we write a script to it, and we try to weave in performance elements within that script. So that the script is consistent and coherent. It, it involves both the value propositions, but also a story that makes you want to watch it uh, all the way through. I, I remember in the Make America Sleep Again, it's like a two and a half minute ad. And at some point, the... the um, the presenter says to the camera, my God, you're still here, right? Because like it's, it's uh, getting people to watch an ad for over two minutes is, um, 
is pretty challenging. And I think, you know, in, the, in our second campaign of commercials lie or don't trust commercials, um, the, the insight is, okay, I'm going to buy a mattress for $1,000. All these commercials promise me, you know, the world. Uh, but I know not to trust commercials. So what should I trust? So I should either trust real reviews from real people or I should trust the 300, I should trust myself and take the mattress that gives me a 365 night trial uh, to decide if I like it or not. And so these insights are what makes the story. And then we try to build the, 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 the actual ad into it. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so what about the measurement side of the creative equation? So how are you, I know that you're very focused on ROI, ROAS, but are there any other kind of more brand metrics that you're focused on or value, or is it all about the bottom of the funnel? So we, as a data company, we measure everything, right? Of course, we, we uh, me as, as the CMO, I'm definitely not for, you know, doing something that can't be measured and just say, oh, well, it's a brand exercise. If, I, if, I, if there's nothing that is measurable about it, then I can't even call it a brand exercise because if I can't even measure the brand metrics of it, then, you know, what is it good for? Uh, but as a data company, we measure everything. So we measure, of course, ROAS and, and, and you know, sales-oriented stuff, but we also measure um, search demand for our brand. And we measure brand awareness, both aided and unaided. Um, and typically, it's not just about the creative, right? Let's say I have a, an amazing creative, but I spend $50,000 in promoting it, or I have a so-so creative but I spend $20 million promoting it. Which one's gonna get you higher brand awareness? Which one's gonna get you higher aided and aided awareness? Which one's gonna get uh, more demand for your brand and which one's gonna sell more? It depends. But so you, 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 gotta, you gotta feed the beast with, with media spend, you know, regardless. So um, we, we try to measure all of it. Uh, and we eventually the people behind every initiative need to show what, what this garnered, right? What what did we what we, what did we do out of it? And not all metrics are going to look favorable. But if some of them are, then we're going to need to decide. Okay, this is good enough, or we need to do another run at it, uh, etc. Yeah, but as a as a first principle, it's about having that information, and before you do anything, knowing what information you're looking for, and setting up the system to be able to actually get it. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. So, um, Gil, I'm going to let you go because we are coming up on time. But before I do, just one question to wrap it up. And I have a feeling I know the direction this is going to go in. But if there's one thing that you would recommend people do differently after listening to this episode based on your experience, based on what's made residents so successful, based on the conversation today, what would that one thing be? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, owning your data, controlling it, first-party data, especially right now, is becoming key. Uh, but I think, you know, when I look at a business, um, I always start actually with the unit economics. Marketing is only part of the unit economics, right? Gross margin is part of it. Lifetime value is part of it. And when you talk about data, you don't even need to have like this intricate infrastructure, this crazy uh, infrastructure that would allow you to have your own device graph and multi-touch attribution models. Just track the 
core metrics that make the business think 80-20, right? Track gross margin, try to improve it. Track marketing performance, try to improve it. Um, track lifetime value and retention and repeat, try to improve that. That's like the 80% that, that, that's like the 20% that make the 80% work. So um, I think that's kind of like what the, the guiding principle for me. Love it. All right. Well, that is a fantastic place to land, Gil. Thank you so much. If people listening want to check out more about Resident or potentially uh, connect with you, where should we send them? Uh, LinkedIn, definitely. Or just go and buy one of our mattresses. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, Gil. Thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric, for having me. Cheers. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.